You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, would you consider yourself a Luddite? Probably not. Should we explain to people what a Luddite is? I mean, that term's thrown around sometimes. I remember when I first learned about it, I didn't know what it was. Oh, it's the followers of Ned Ludd who used to destroy the machines because they were seeing their wages being ripped away because of the new machines. And it was, you know, not a good situation for these really talented folks. It was actually capital punishment to destroy machines in Britain because they want to protect industry. Yeah, so it's, it's this story from the 19th century, right, about people who resisted a new technology. And so now if you resist it, people call you a Luddite, but it's usually an insult, right? Like it's saying, oh, you won't learn about new technologies. It's not, it's not usually seen as like positive, even though like there's some good, sometimes you should say no to technology, right? Sure, sure. I think you should think about its purpose. Sometimes, Dan, I question about your Ludditeness. I don't know if you're like in a Luddite adjacent place. I actually think I need to be more of a Luddite because while, you know, recently, you know, I've taken a more critical stance on technology, I still use it all day long, you know, and sometimes I feel like I need to do a better job of stepping away. Maybe you need to embrace the Luddite in you. Ooh. Do you step away from technology sometimes, like purposefully and to, to like, because you know there's a benefit? With my kids, I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I'm home right now and I spend a lot of time with them. And so we are away from technology most of the time. Um, so, yeah. No, we do our, I do have us to, to, to steer away from that stuff. Well, so we're lucky tonight because we're going to have somebody who people would call a Luddite, not because she's doesn't use technology, but because she kind of likes to, to smash the technology like those those people oh did goodness. in the 1800s. Yeah. Like the followers of Ned Ludd. Exactly. Exactly. And so we would love to welcome into the podcast, Audrey Waters. So Audrey Waters, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Can you tell everyone who is Audrey Waters? I am a writer. I think the, the fancy word is independent scholar. I'm not affiliated with mm. any university or particular publication. I have a website called Hack Education, and I'm really interested in what I call the history of the future of education. So I'm interested in how we've talked for, for centuries now about the future of education as being increasingly technological. And I like to ask questions about what exactly people mean when they make these sweeping predictions about robots replacing teachers. And you are, I mean, in my opinion, I want you, you know, you wouldn't say this yourself, but you are kind of the go-to on the problems with ed tech that we need to be asking. I feel like I've learned so much from following you of a newsletter that everyone should sign up for. And you've been doing blog posts and writing about this stuff. Um, Recently, you had a great article on the 100 debacles from the 2010s. And I think that got probably got a lot of attention. I'd love to know how many people viewed that. I feel like it's got to be so many um, because it really gave a nice overview of all the problems we've had with ed tech recently. And you see a lot of themes across those, but you're also working on a book. And I'm sure you at least should tell us a little bit about that because I know that's been a big focus for you. Yeah, I'm working on a book out next year. Um, MIT Press is publishing it. It's called Teaching Machines. And it's Again, it's about the history of education technology, but I'm really interested in the the stuff that came before the computer. I think that we often we tell stories about technology, broadly speaking. We act as though the computer is somehow the pinnacle of human achievement. (laughs) And so I'm really curious about what came in ed tech before then. It's the story of Probably one of my favorite, I don't know if I would call him, I guess I would call him antagonists in education and ask B.F. Skinner and his idea of how we can train children much like he trained pigeons. 
That's a really important story to tell. And I'm sure your book is going to be a wonderful accompaniment to, to Larry Cuban's uh, book, Teachers and Machines, which came out in 1986. But ever, I mean, I find it so relevant to think about. It's incredible. The, the best picture is in that book of kids learning in a plane and they're, they've got like this plane and they're instead of like looking out their windows and doing like understanding how like the landscape and how cities are organized and all that, they're like literally have desks and are looking at the teacher. And it's just such a good metaphor for the failures of ed tech to transform anything. Um, into the ideas it had. So I think I'm excited to that. That was the first book that really helped me question the way media technologies were used in schools. And I've learned so much over the years from you about all these other ed tech, ed tech things. I'm excited to to see your book come out. We will be for sure make sure that we we um, share that with everyone when it does come out. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it coming out too. I'm, I feel like I've been working on this project forever. <laughs> So we, we really appreciate uh, you joining my class, and we're actually going to go to that part now where you gave a little talk to my students, and they asked you a few questions, and so we appreciate you doing that. So here's that section of this podcast. Well, yeah, thank you. No, thank you for having me, and congratulations to all of you. I guess you're enrolled in the most like perfectly and horribly timed class as you're you know, tasked with thinking about education technology critically in a time in which everyone, even more than usual, is being compelled to sort of turn over their educational experiences to ed tech. I wanna talk a little bit about history, the history of ed tech. But I wanna preface that by sort of saying like, why talk about, why talk about history? And I, and I realize that everyone right now, particularly on social media, wants to talk about either what's happening right now or what's hap- gonna happen in the future. But even with everything currently upside down, I think knowing a little bit about the history of education technology, there are lessons, right, that we can glean from the past. Obviously, we talk about history that way. But I think it's important because education in particular is really a set of institutions and practices that have a long history. And so it's important to sort of think about how we got here. And here, this moment right now, that isn't actually a magical break from the past, even though it feels like things are really different. I mean, history still informs and shapes us and our decisions about now and the future, even when they're wildly incorrect, are still shaped by history. My least favorite story, of course, is the favorite of the Secretary of Education, who says that school hasn't changed in hundreds of years. So even when the history is wrong, it still shapes how we think about school. So I think, if nothing else, it's worth, I think, calming people down particularly those who want to say, all of this is unprecedented. We have no way of knowing how to cope with this moment and reassure people that there's a lot of history. There's a lot of historical research. There's a lot of social scientific research about education that can help us think through this moment. We have decades of research that demonstrates in general that some ed tech works okay for some students in some subject areas under some circumstances. And we know that all of the qualifications in that previous sentence, right, which ed tech, which students, which subject areas, what sorts of circumstances, those play out in ways that exacerbate educational inequalities. And under normal circumstances, ed tech is no silver bullet. So, I mean, why would we expect it to be one now. We also know decades of history, right, that people have been trying to automate education for a long time. And that push is not dependent on how well ed tech works, right? We also know that technology is often what we turn to, to address problems, social, economic, political, yeah, medical crises facing education, right? We've done this before. Crises like the World War I, polio outbreaks, 
before when schools were closed, Sputnik, right? The rising cost of college, there aren't enough teachers. These are all times in which politicians and administrators and business officials turn to technology, right? And they say that technology is gonna save us. And we know, as historian Larry Cuban wrote almost 20 years ago, computers, these latest machines, have really been oversold. Their promises unfulfilled. So I wanna to talk just a little bit about computer-assisted instruction in the 1960s, which might seem weird and irrelevant today, but I, I, I promise you it's not. I, I wanna talk about it partially because I didn't get a chance to in my book that's coming out, and I have a lot of ideas that I felt worth you know, putting down on paper, if you will. Our, Michael and I are both in social studies, so talking about history and technology is very exciting for us. So I, I think it's, I mean, for me, it's really fascinating because we, when we talk about technology, we act as though it's somehow like, I'll, I'll bring out the folklore example here, like mythology, like that it's like Athena who's just like birthed out of Zeus's head, right? As though there's no history to any of these things, you know, like one day, like Steve Jobs, like laid an egg and it was the iPhone. Like these things have a history and, and they are situated in a particular time and it's worth our talking about. And so I want to talk about computer assisted instruction in the 1960s uh, because I want, I think when I tell the story, hopefully from this class, you'll be able to sort of pick up on things, right? I want you to think about who is the target population in the story for ed tech. I want you to think about what kind of space, physical space, does this ed tech happen in? And what does it mean to ask students to work in that space? And I want you to think about how the technology imagines the work, the labor of teaching and learning, and how it imagines the process of learning and the learner. So in 1962, Patrick Soupies, he's the name probably most closely associated with um, computer-assisted instruction, and his fellow Stanford professors, Richard Atkinson, who would later become the president of University of California, and William Estes received a million-dollar grant from the Carnegie Cor Corporation. So that's, that's about $8 million in today's, today's money. And this was to study computer-assisted teaching of math and to find a way to automate the teaching of math. So 1962 was shortly after Sputnik, five years after Sputnik. And it was, of course, before the advent of the personal computer. But at Stanford, they had access to a couple of mainframe computers. So they brought, they made some learning stations. They brought first grade students into the lab five days a week for 20-minute sessions to work on math, computer-based math curriculum, which if you have to imagine the logistics of bringing a class of first graders every day to the Stanford class, to the Stanford campus for 20 minutes, it was a challenge. So they moved it off campus into the student's school, but of course you can't move a mainframe into the elementary school building. So they had to install some dumb terminals that could connect back to the mainframe via phone line. So you had to convince the phone company that it was okay to send signals over the wire this way. That was new. And then you had to find room for the terminals in the school. Remember, this is the baby boom, right? Schools were overcrowded. So the only free space for these terminals was the storage closet. And that's where the students were sent, one at a time, to work on their math lessons, which were drill and kill exercises. And so in 1964, Soupies wrote a report for his funder, Carnegie, and explained how the teletype, this modified typewriter keyboard and a ticker tape were connected to Stanford, and it was used daily at the Walter Hayes Elementary School in Palo Alto, which was one of the highest ranking elementary schools in the state of California. And he said that we're on air for about two and a half to three hours with a class of 40 students. We attempt to process all 40 students. Each student sits at the teletype terminal for two to five minutes. They're very efficient at it. It doesn't take them more than 20 seconds to get at the terminal or leave the terminal. 
we ask them to begin by typing their name, hitting the return key, and the timing of the rest of the drill is controlled by the program. And what we're finding, Supi said, that with this detailed and objective control, we can hope to train a student to a level of accuracy and perfection that is difficult to achieve in the classroom environment. For the sake of time, I'll skip a whole discussion about BF Skinner and operant conditioning and the training of children, similar to the training of pigeons. But suffice it to say, computer-assisted education was very much in that behaviorist bent. We're training children. So the children would enter their name on the teletype, and the computer would then pull up their file. Remember, this is the 19, 1962. Find the exercises they'd done the previous day, and then based on that information, give them a concept to work on and the difficulty of those exercises. Um, they had 20 multiple choice questions. Students had 10 seconds to answer each one. If they got it wrong, the computer would tell them the right answer. And at the end of the time, the teletype would print out the student's score and the average of their scores. And it would say it was sort of friendly, goodbye, oh, fearless drill tester, and then tear off on the dotted line. And the student would have a receipt from their session. Wow. And Supi said that this was going to individualize education. They didn't use personalize. They used the word individualize. He said it makes the individualization of instruction easier Students can be programmed. The student's history of learning and successes and failures can be known by the computer, and the computer will be able to act like a tutor, a personal tutor that will replace the traditional teacher classroom instruction. And he predicted in 1966 that in just a few years, millions of school children would have access to what Philip of Macedon's son, Alexander, enjoyed as a royal prerogative the personal services of a tutor as well-informed and responsive as Aristotle, right? So by 1967, Supi thought this would be a good business. Computer, his curriculum was used in seven schools in California, and he boasted that the very first city in which every elementary school student learned math through this computer-based system was Maycomb, Mississippi, very far cry from the Chinsey Elementary School down the street from Stanford. Computer-assisted instruction may well be a technique suitable for closing the education gap, a 1969 report said, but it added that drill-and-kill exercises are not suitable for more advantaged, I think, read white students. Wow. So in 1967, Supi's founded a company to sell this. It sold its courseware and then convinced school districts to lease IBM computers and terminals, primarily to, for use in elementary schools. The first year, they got a huge contract with the Chicago Public Schools expressly to provide remediation. Right? The company struggled, as you can imagine, this was a lot of money for school districts to invest in a mainframe computer. In fact, schools districts found that computers did not save money, they cost more money, right? And critics decried this as sort of a thousand dollar flashcard. And the results weren't great. Students who used computer assisted instruction did just about as well as students who received traditional teacher based education. Um, incidentally, his company didn't go out of business because of federal dollars um, in the late 1960s. Urban renewal kind of replaced Sputnik as the educational crisis and that demanded technological intervention. And so there were there was federal dollars that helped schools like Macon, Mississippi, procure rent mainframe computers from IBM. And actually, Supi's, corporation, Supi's company was sold to Simon & Schuster in 1990. So my favorite product, actually, besides installing terminals in schools, was something called Dial-A-Drill. So rather than a teletype, the, the Dial-A-Drill used a telephone, and it would call the student at home, 
and pose questions that the students would then answer by pushing the buttons on the telephone in response. So I'll repeat this. The program called the school, the program called the student. The student didn't call the program. The drill and kill exercise called the student at their house. And in some cases, it would call the parents and drill them on math as well. So in 1970, a Computer World article touted how great this was. They tried it out in New York City. Students would get three five-minute phone calls a week. They said that one of the great things was that students couldn't fail. Again, the, the computer would give them the right, the right concept at the right time. Students would move at their own pace. The questions would be at the right level, and students would minimize errors. Precisely the stuff that Mark Zuckerberg says that personalized education will do today. Soupies said that dial a drill could teach math, reading, foreign language, computer programming, but obviously there's a limited amount of what you can do with multiple choice testing. And as the name suggests, this was drill exercises. But you know, drill exercises were precisely what people in the back to basic movement at the time were calling for students to do. Less of that new math and more repetition of the basic skills. And really this sort of zeal for computer-based instruction and for dial-a-drill sort of flourished for a brief time and it, it didn't really last. And even by 1980, another computer magazine sort of hedged its bets on whether or not this was really what students should be doing with computers. It wrote that one of the biggest potentials for computer, for personal computers, is taking education out of the school and putting it back in the home, which is interesting. Certainly programs like Dial-A-Drill, it said, will be one of the best options available, an easy way for parents to turn over responsibility for their children's education to a computer. But what we must ensure, this op-ed wrote, was that the potential benefits of this high-tech hickory stick do not come at the expense of more innovative educational software. So, of course, computer-assisted instruction never went away. It re-emerged with the personal computer. It re-emerged with mobile devices. And I think we can maybe discuss whether or not we think it's gotten better, whether or not it's still a bunch of high-tech hickory sticks. And then ask, right, who gets the hickory stick and who gets the innovative educational software, whatever that looks like. And, you know, again, thinking about this idea that Info, the story predicted that educational computing was going to creep into the home, right? As a replacement for school, I don't think so, not for the majority of students, but as an extension of school, yeah, and as a weird kind of surveillance and check up on what you're doing at home. Yeah. And an extension of an edtech company's reach as well. And I think that now, now with students at home online, it's perhaps more important than ever to think about what this kind of creep of edtech into the home looks like, particularly for disadvantaged students. That's a, that's a great story. I really appreciate you sharing that. And it does, it's amazing how much I was able to make connections to today as you're telling a story from the 60s. And I think that's, you know, I always say not that history repeats itself, but that it has rhythm and rhymes that we often see. And so, yeah, I, I, I like that question of what, what ed tech for who, right? Under, and under what conditions. So that, that was a really powerful story. So I'm fascinated, but we all have to sort of log in to Zoom now. But, you know, in the 1960s, the idea was somehow that the computer was going to sort of log into our homes. And mm -hmm. I thought that, that is, seems, it seems sort of even more invasive than sort of sitting at home and, you know, letting these sort of video surveillance, letting these apps that know where we are sort of come into our worlds, into our pockets. But this idea that, in the 1960s, we were imagining sort of the computer calling the child to make sure that they were doing their homework. Is that, is that a, how, how different is the, are these kind of technologies in terms of their invasiveness today? 
Well, it reminds me a lot of Class Dojo and the encouragement of, of, of parents to even use Class Dojo at home, right? Like that's where it really seems to bound up. But yeah, it sounds like a dystopian education novel um, the, <laughs> to get the call, to get phone calls for multiple choice questions. That just sounds like a nightmare for children. I'm sorry, if I got, if as a parent, I got one, I would be like, yeah, nah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing my math homework tonight, sorry. And I'm sure there's equity issues that, at that time too, right? I'm sure telephones weren't universal and I'm sure, they that, were and, and I'm sure wor- working class families face different challenges about when you can answer your phone and attend to these types of things. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, total, absolute parallels with, with today, the access to access to devices, access to a phone line, and then this idea that you have to, that this expectation that somehow your home life is a place in which education technology sort of imagines that your home life is a, is a conducive to, to learning, and it's not, not always the way. What I was thinking about was with the COVID shutdown, our teachers have gone into a triage experience in terms of education where they're being put into a situation where they have to use technology and go to online platforms with little or no time to adjust to their experiences. So what do you think is going to be some of the fallout that we'll we'll see as this kind of new wave of education is forced upon our uh, public ed? I think that this is such a great question, and I've seen a lot of people within the education technology industry really act as though somehow this is their time. Like, this is what we've been waiting for, and now, now everyone's going to sort of experience the wonder of, of education technology, including the reluctant, the reluctant teachers who never were particularly keen to experiment with tools let alone move their courses online. And I don't think that, well, I don't think that this is going to be a scenario where we can judge whether or not education technology works or doesn't work. It's such a crisis scenario. I, I'm, every time I hear people sort of talk about it as a great experiment, I, it kind of turns my stomach because it feels like that's the last thing we should be asking right now. We should sort of be checking in with everybody's psychological well-being much more than we should be worried about whether or not they've mastered a new, a new set of tools. I think it's going to be interesting to see how this changes parents' ideas about ed tech in particular as they watch their students or as they struggle themselves with having to cope with multiple logins to multiple systems. I think that uh, the jury's out on whether this is going to be a boon for ed tech or very much a bust. One thing I would say is that if if I can be optimistic is I hope that it demonstrates. And I think that some of the labor actions that we've seen in the last couple of years, but I hope that it demonstrates how important educators are, how important school is, and that this isn't really something that can be replaced by (laughs) by an automated teaching machine, right? That there is something truly valuable about teachers, what teachers do, the work that teachers do, um, and not just as a sort of instructional robot, but in terms of uh, the, the, the numerous other things that teachers do in a class. So I think that the fall, I, I, don't, I don't think that this is going to be sort of education technology's shining moment. Thank you for that answer. I'm Karen Bump. In my district, we use Schoology. Actually, for the secondary, we were introduced to it two years ago. And our third year, which would be this year, was supposed to be our shining moment of totally depending on it, except there's a, there was a crisis between the Texas gradebook and the gradebook and Schoology. Our elementary school teachers had not even come on board. So from what I understand from some of the emails is they're stressing. But my question was, what is your take on Schoology and the wide scheme of platforms? So I don't know if I have a, an opinion about Schoology specifically. In general, I am not a huge fan of the learning management system. Partially, I mean, it's just there in the name. The idea that that you would have 
a system that would somehow manage learning to me seems to be full, full of problems. I think it's these, these technologies, again, I'm, I'm so interested in the history of where these technologies come from. And of course, the, the first learning management systems really sort of came in the late 1990s when sort of when universities in particular were recognizing that faculty and students were putting things on the web and there was a pressure on universities to keep things off the open web and somehow safe and secure, putting things behind, for lack of a better word, a paywall or a login so that, so that other people wouldn't see the information. But there was also, I think, in the, in the late 90s, sort of a fear about the open web, that the web was somehow this, this dangerous place, and we needed to keep students within these sort of walls to, to protect them, to protect our reputational brand as a university, and to protect students from, I don't know, stumbling into some of the scary places. I mean, I guess in the late 1990s, if you remember, this is sort of like the AOL world, right? So that there were portals that warned you when you would sort of leave leave the safety of their platform and that's what the learning management system is it seems to be to be a relic of the, of a time in which we were very frightened of of the web it's an online for most people i think it's an online grade book it's a place to store files i suppose it's it's the way to organize classes it's also just a huge it's just a huge money sink for for, you know, for schools as well. Um, it's a great business to be in if you can uh, get investors to like your, your learning management system. And I think investors liked Schoology for a while. So I think they were acquired. So probably their technology will turn to crap shortly. So good luck with that. <laughs> Thank um, you. And, <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and that last comment speaks to the whole nature of you know, people in Silicon Valley and in the tech world are aiming to make profits off of all of this. And so there's oftentimes, you know, this quick turn, you know, this turnaround that's not in the benefit of educators where they're like, well, this isn't profitable anymore. And they sell it off to somebody else who, like you said, then doesn't care about the technology or, or whatever it is. And, and so there's this real conflict in interests, I think, between the ed tech sector and education. Which I yeah, think the, the timeline the timelines are really different. So if you think about Silicon Valley investment cycles, right? Venture capital. When you receive when you raise venture capital as a startup, really the clock starts running on your investment, and investors want to see really within three three to four years that you that they either want you to be acquired. That's really, I think, the goal of most most in education to, um, technology in particular. The goal is that you've got a company that someone wants to acquire. Very rarely do education technology startups go public unless they're a learning management system or else you go away. And so the three to five year cycle is, is, a, very fa is a very fast cycle, particularly if you've got to convince if you're looking at convincing school districts to adopt you, even if you're looking to convince parents to adopt you to work with you know, kids at home. But three to five years is also a very short amount of time to be able to say anything intelligent about whether or not your product actually works. Whatever works means you know, in, terms of, in terms of efficacy. And so it's, it's just a timeline that doesn't really work with the speed of education. But it's it's the one that venture capitalists seem stuck with, and so you do see um, less so these days. But certainly in the early two thousand teens, just a huge influx of venture capital venture capital funding into ed tech startups. That by and large, the vast majority of them have gone away. I mean, in good riddance, maybe. <laughs> Unless you, were, <laughs> unless you were using them for something, you know, pretty crucial. And then it always sucks when your favorite tech or tech tool goes away. Mm -hmm. So we all know Google has come bursting onto the scene of education. And I just wanted to know your take on any benefits of Google getting involved. And also, what are some of the negatives of Google getting involved, like Google Classroom and then just all the different Google apps for education? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, one can say that 
it's great because it's free and you know for cash strapped school districts free seems like a good price but of course the trade-off with google with all of google's products is that you don't you might not pay cash for it but you are paying with your data and even though google says it does not use student data for advertising it does still use student data to develop its models and its algorithms so student data still is sort of feeding feeding Google's bottom line. I think it's a deal with the devil that schools have made. And it's, I think, very difficult for us as individual consumers, but even as school districts, to sort of unwind ourselves from the way in which Google has its tentacles into our personal and professional lives. I think that there should be much stronger regulatory mechanisms that look, that govern technology, particularly that govern education technology. The ones that do right now are so weak. They're so out, outdated. I think FERPA, the, the FERPA, the, pri the main privacy one, I think was, is from like 1974 or something. So it's almost as old as I am. And I think, you know, COPPA, the, the one that all, another privacy one, you know, is older than Mark Zuckerberg, bless his heart. So these are, these laws are certainly not have not the regulations have not stayed up to date with with the kinds of demands I think that we should make on the technology companies when they have student data. I think that one of the question the questions that you have on the screen here, this I think that. One of the things that's so challenging about education technology is that it's compulsory. It's compulsory in ways that are really insidious. Um, parents, you know, parents have some leeway in opting their, their children out of certain classes, for example. But it's very difficult to opt out of something like the learning management system. You, 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 you can't. I and mean, it does leave you at a, at a huge disadvantage. It's very hard to take an ethical stance to, to protect your, your own privacy when, when, there is, when you're compelled to use these. And the same thing happens, happens to us for, at work as well. You, you don't have a choice. You're forced, you're forced to use those. And so I think anytime you're in a situation where we're forcing students, forcing children to use technology, and I don't even care about sort of the parent, the parental consent. I mean, I think we're still compelling people to use technology. I think we need to do a much better job at protecting students' privacy and protecting students' data and asking questions about why is the data being gathered at all. All of these technology companies, including Zoom that we're using right now, collect a massive amounts of data from us. And I think that shocking, I think, for most people to realize the kinds of things that Google, but also even Schoology knows about you, right? Schoology, if you have, you know, I, I'm not, Schoology, oftentimes apps know where you are, you know, they, they track, they have location, access to location data, they know what device you've opened, thing, um, you know, if you're looking at it on an iPhone versus an Android, they know how long you've looked at certain screens. And so it really is, I think, developing a culture of surveillance that I don't think is healthy for democracy, let alone healthy for, for students developing their identity. One of our groups is um, looking at smartphone policies in schools. And it's in the kind of the start of that project was from a story from parents who had been, you know, surveilling their kids. And I, I know a lot of people don't see parental surveillance as surveillance, but, and, you know, their big concern is they went to the school and complained that their kids were on their phones looking at certain sites for too long during the day and they wanted the school to take care of it. And so the school was then looking at making a stricter smartphone policy based on these, you know, small couple of parents that, that were complaining about it. And so you just see like the surveillance is just everywhere. For kids these yeah, days. Yeah, and this is an equity issue too, right? I mean, so if you are, if you're using a school issued device or you're using school issued internet, you have access to a very different set of websites, for example, than if you are not using a filtered internet or if you're using your own device. 
And so I think that, you know, that your, your ability to, to search for certain topics, your the ability to, and school filters, school filters are still sort of a, a rough tool. They, they, aren't, um, they aren't necessarily very great at the kinds of things that you can access. My website, Hack Education, for example, is blocked in a lot of school districts because of that word hack. Somehow it's, you know, <laughs> somehow it's full of, you know, dangerous information on how, well, maybe <laughs> I like to think it is like, but, you know, dangerous information on how to subvert computer systems. And so I think that, you know, filtering is certainly an equity issue. And so there's the survey and there's the surveillance piece of it as well. The, the ways in which we know already, we know already these systems play out unequally across school districts. We know, for example, about, you know, the higher, the higher proportion of black students who are disciplined and stuff. And so when we move these things into technologies, those practices come with us. And so I think there are a lot of questions to ask about surveillance in particular. Yeah, where our district is requiring us to record every Zoom interaction with students and upload it to Google Drive. So not only are we recording them on Zoom and using Zoom, but then we are also having to put all of that on a team drive and I'm kind of concerned about it just with like, does every interaction actually have to go on there, but should there be concern about all that? Or what should the concern be? I would be, I mean, I would be super concerned. I, I mean, it, you know, there's a couple of, a couple of different things. Of course, New York city just uh, told its teachers not to use zoom out of privacy and security concerns. You know, Zoom, it's not clear to me that some of these products, Zoom being one of them, are necessarily compliant in the ways in which FERPA or COPPA compliant. Um, it depends if you're using their education, to, like if you've signed up and paid them through their education funnel, or if you're just using the, the free version. I also just think that it's, I mean, to me, it's just part of this, this creepy factor too, um, of recording every single interaction, interaction between, uh, between student and teacher and among students themselves, right? There are ways in which within Zoom, you can record all of the chat functions. And that just seems extraneous. I mean, I know, you know, I, I realize that there are, you know, fears, fears about certain things, but the idea, I just can't imagine sort of, you know, hundred years ago when I was in elementary school, this idea that all of the notes that we passed back and forth were somehow scanned and ended up in the, in a, in the, in the principal's, um, you know, file cabinet is, is, is just super creepy and unnecessary. And there's no, I don't think that there's any benefit to that other than, other than really creating a climate in which nobody trusts each other. And I think it's important to work on a school, school culture in which people trust one another, we trust teachers, and we trust students. And I think by surveilling everybody and saving every little piece of digital interaction, it certainly sends a signal that nobody can be trusted, and that sucks. Yeah, one of our other groups is focused on oversharing in schools, with both with schools and parents, and just, I mean, the, the inability for young people to make mistakes or say silly things or or just, you know, have a developmental, you know, kind of approach. I just think about how silly of a person I was as a young person. And they're, they're just like not afforded that without it being digitally captured. And, um, and yeah. we, we often share it too. I think that's another point that some, some we've talked about in our classes that we're teachers and, and parents are often the ones sharing some of these digital interactions. Yeah. So I wanted to ask, I know from when we read your Tech Debacles article, you talked about how smart boards and interactive whiteboards in general were one of the hundred tech debacles in your opinion. Um, I was just curious, what do you think of, I guess, their little brother that's surfacing now, the whole idea of an interactive panel where we essentially have like 90 inch iPads hung on our walls in the classrooms? <laughs> you know, um, I didn't know about this. I think that the, the ability for education technology companies to convince school superintendents and school tech coordinators, apologies if there's any in this class, to spend just a ton of money on stuff that they don't need always amazes me. 
I mean, I've been in these showrooms and I don't actually think they're such great salespeople. I've never heard a pitch that I was like, wow, let me, let me like, let me make sure that we've got a 90 inch iPad on the wall of every school in my, or every class in my district. It's, it, it amazes me. I, I think it's, I think that there are so many other ways in which we could think about our technology budgets that have less to do with buying screens, large screens or small screens. I mean, it's just a, it's an obscene amount of money that goes into things that I just don't think we've seen any demonstrable evidence that ha does anything to improve improves students' sort of curiosity or you know, emotional well-being or intellectual achievement or any of that. And the things that I, I mean, I've seen, you know, of course, there's always the anecdotes about educators who do wonderful, interesting, compelling things with these technologies. I get it. I've also seen teachers do wonderful, interesting, compelling things with cardboard boxes, right? So I'm not convinced that spending a ton of money on, on the shiny stuff is really what makes your school district great or not. And actually back to the very first question, this is going to be a really interesting sort of reckoning for ed tech when I think when, when we do get to get back in face-to-face -face settings, whenever that is, like <laughs> three or four years from now, I don't know, in the fall, in the spring of 2021, when we are back in the classroom physically, you know, what is our relationship going to look like with technology then? Are, is everyone going to be so tired of interacting with screens that we really want to just spend some time with one another, right? We really want to spend some time making things with our hands and not typing things out. We want to go back to sort of, a, sort of not interacting with technology, having gone to Zoom school for the past year. I think it'll be interesting to see if we have more Luddites or fewer Luddites at the end of this particular crisis. Yeah, and to, to your point, I mean, I, I know in my educational career, I've seen, you know, my department buy everyone iPads with literally no training of what to do with them. And I just saw my colleagues using them for email. And I'm like, oh my goodness, why, why is that? I mean, the amount of money that was spent without a plan. And then the same thing with every room getting smart boards, which people basically just used as projectors because, you know, um, a lot of people didn't think about ways to use them and a lot of people didn't even want them, right? They didn't right. see a need for them to have, you know, an interactive board where the, you have 30 kids, what are the kids all walking up to this one six foot space um, in a classroom and, and doing these activities? And it just wasn't realistic. And again, I think you're right. We point to the examples of like the 0.5% that do something incredible and ignore that's like 99.5% that are, didn't need them. Yeah, didn't want them. And I think that that's, you know, again, back to, I talked a little bit about how we compel, you know, we compel students to use technology, but educators are compelled to use these technologies as well. I mean, educators don't have a choice whether or not to use Schoology, right? Your district says, guess what, everybody? It's Schoology. You don't get to, you don't get to say, well, I do. A really, I mean, maybe you do. Maybe you say I do. I have a really awesome little green paper notebook in which I hold everyone's grades in, and then I'll just type them into Schoology at the end of the semester. To hell with you guys. That's <laughs> that's how I would roll. Well, thank thank you so much for answering student questions. So, what advice do you have for educators who are sometimes forced, but are utilizing technology uh, in their classroom or in their experience? My advice is to ask a lot of questions about why. My advice is, for one thing, that it is okay to be a Luddite, right? I think Luddites get a short shrift. Uh, we like to use Luddites as somebody as, to mock and say that they're out of touch, but that's not quite what the Luddites were, right? The Luddites, if you recall, were, were skilled loom workers and they work they worked on machines they worked with looms looms are machines what the luddites resisted was the automation of the looms and they resisted the notion that they would go work on a loom that they didn't own in a factory right and that their labor was being sort of taken away that their expertise was being denied and taken away from them so i think it's okay to be a teacher and be a luddite it doesn't mean that you reject the machine, what it means is that you reject using machines that are going to sort of 
take away your agency and take away your decision, ability to make decisions about what you know is best for your profession, what you know is best for your students. And so I do think it's okay to say no to technology. I think it doesn't make you a bad teacher. It doesn't make you outmoded. It doesn't mean that you're the first in line to be replaced with a digital flashcard. I think it's important that more of us ask questions and stop and resist some of the technology because most of it is crap. Most of it is crap. There is some useful stuff out there for sure. But a lot of the stuff that gets forced, forced on, on teachers isn't that great. And I think that teachers should be able to say no. I'm afraid of being replaced by that robot who calls students at their homes to give them multiple choice questions. <laughs> no, you're not. Nobody is going to put up with that. <laughs> Nobody Thank answers God. their phone anymore anyway. <laughs> you're, you're saying we need to take the Just Say No drug program, which was completely ineffectual, and instead have a just say no to technology program, maybe for the ed tech coordinators at districts, they should be the first ones to go through. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Audrey Waters, for joining us today. So where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me at my website, hackeducation.com, and Twitter, I suppose, although I recommend we all avoid social media in these difficult times, but I am on Twitter at Audrey Waters. Hey, if it makes you feel better, Twitter shut down our podcast account because we changed, we changed it to our actual birth date, which would be Not four. we. Not I, we. Okay, it was me. I did it. Oh, <laughs> and, and you so, were under 13, right? And so, yeah, which would mean we also started the account on the day of our birth, which is apparently the algorithms couldn't detect, and it immediately shut it down, no warning, and that was a couple weeks ago, and, and We've done all this appeals stuff and I haven't heard back. So if you're good friends with Jack Dorsey, feel free to, to reach out for us, everyone. I'm afraid Jack and I aren't buddies. <laughs> Otherwise, I would do you the solid. <laughs> well, we appreciate you so much joining us today. And we do certainly hope to continue the discussion online, but not too much online, as you said, and in other spaces, maybe near, you know, real people in the physical presence of you that are at minimum of six to 10 feet away from you. <laughs> Stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. At the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, typically you can tweet us at Visions of Ed. Obviously, you know our story. We're also on uh, Facebook and in that mystery place, which revealed a few episodes prior, but have not checked since. And of course, if you haven't already, Subscribe to the Visions of Education podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. You can even also sign up on your Apple TV for some reason. I have no idea why, but why not? Get it why, done. Why not indeed? If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. And as always, we would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills and participating in tonight's conversation. Thanks, Zach. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kartka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. <laughs>